Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that you are our Redeemer. Lord, we sing of you, and we thank you that you call us as disciples your family. That's amazing. And we give you great praise and thanks for your mercy and your kindness to us. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to listen to your word, to hear from you, Lord Jesus, this morning. And we pray that we would not merely be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. Help us to love one another and help us to love you above all. Bless this time this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 38 through 50. Matthew 12, 38 through 50. And when you find that, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we, in respect for God's Word, when we read it, we stand. Matthew 12, 38, reading through verse 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I come, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother And my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I've mentioned many times uh, the the author Carl Truman. He's come out with a couple books recently. Uh, One is a a thicker book, a really meaty book um, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it does a number of uh, uh, cultural analysis of uh, how did we get to where we're at now in our culture over the last couple hundred years? There's actually an abridged version of this book, a little less meaty. I'm going to weigh a few copies of that to others. I've got two copies left, so if you're interested, you can come talk to me. 
But one of the things that Carl Truman uh, brings up in those books is this idea that as human beings, we always find our identity in relation to others. We always find our identity in relation to others. Or another way of saying that, we find our identity in community. That's why that you can have in our culture and in our society individuals individuals who say, this is who I am. I've decided who I'm going to be. I mean, that's what our culture says. You're an individual. You believe uh, whatever you want to believe. You be whoever you want to be. That's a very individualistic thing. But then those same people, uh, they're not just content to say, that's my identity, to say that to themselves. They actually actively need other people to affirm that identity, don't they? That's what's going on with the LGBTQ plus um, agenda. That's this, the, these people are saying, well, uh, this is who I am. I've decided what my identity is, but it's not enough to just say, yeah, okay, that's my identity. But whether through legal action or through the, the community they're a part of, they need that community to affirm them in their identity. And if they're not affirmed in their identity, then they raise their voice louder and speak against it. But that fundamental idea that we find our identity in relation to others is a true observation about how God has made us as individuals. And that actually comes into play in the passage we're looking at this morning. How so? Well, what you're seeing and what we have seen increasingly in Matthew 11 through 12 is that um, what we see is increasing opposition from Jesus' generation to him. It keeps increasing and increasing, and even last week it reached a really pinnacle where, where the Pharisees are saying, by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan, you're casting out demons. And so you're increasingly seeing, through this opposition, Jesus and his disciples tear away from their generation. And that's true also of Matthew's audience. Who's Matthew's audience? Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians in and around Palestine who, much the same way, they're still dealing with the same form of Judaism because the form of Judaism that Jesus was encountering under the, kind of the, the, the guidance of the Pharisees, the leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the same Judaism that survived even the destruction of the temple and so really, Matthew's audience is facing the same thing. Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians. They're following Jesus as the Messiah, but their Jewish neighbors and family are not. And so all of a sudden, their identity, the Jewish Christian's identity, is threatened in a sense, isn't it? Because, wait a minute, my friends and my family aren't following Jesus. Israel has always been God's people in God's plan in the Old Testament, and yet all of a sudden, my people, my people aren't following their Messiah. So where does that leave me? Where does that leave my identity? And really what happens in Matthew answers that question in a large way. See, what's going to have to happen, what happens in the Gospel of Matthew and what's going to happen with Matthew's Jewish Christian audience they need to be able to take the drastic step of separating from their friends and the family in a way. They need to see that the scribes and the Pharisees and that generation that heard Jesus and John is evil and adulterous and decisively under Jesus and the Father's condemnation. And they need to know, as Jewish Christians, where to root their identity with that separation. 
Essentially, that's what's happening in our passage this morning. They're going to separate from their own generation, and the question is, well, where do you find your identity? Because you find your identity in community, where are you going to find that? It's similar to our own generation, just to give you a preview of some of the application that we're going to see from this passage. We see our generation as increasingly wicked and evil and adulterous, and increasingly we're going to have to separate, not that we're going to go out into the woods somewhere and totally unplug from society, that's not what we're saying, but there's going to be an increasing separation and isolation, and so the question is, how do we deal with that? And the answers that Matthew and Jesus gives are the answers that we need to hear as well. So the main idea for the section this morning, the passage this morning, is this. What was there for Matthew's audience, what's there for us. Root your identity in the king's family of disciples, not in an evil and adulterous generation. Root your identity in the king's family of disciples, not in an evil and adulterous generation. And there's two parts to this. You can, kind of see, you can see it in the text. First, we're going to see Jesus' stance towards his evil generation in verses 38 through 45. And then we're going to see Jesus' stance towards his family in verses 46 through 50. And his stances towards his generation and towards his biological family will help us answer that question of identity. So let's look at verse 38 as we go forward. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. Now, even before we go any farther, note something. The scribes and the Pharisees, now remember the scribes are, they kind of have an official function as teachers and handlers of the law in Israel. The, the Pharisees are more kind of, they have a position just by reputation. They, people understand they're, they're very fastidious about the law, they're interpreters of the law, and so they have authority, but it's kind of given them by the people. They're more grassroots in that sense. But we've, we've been seeing the Pharisees, that's who Jesus was talking to last week, and notice that really what's happening here is a continuation of what happened last week. What happened last week? Jesus exercised a demon from a mute and blind man, and so that the mute and blind man saw. And then the Pharisees, the, 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 the crowds, the crowds that are there were, have been saying, well, maybe this is the son of David. And the Pharisees said, no, by the power of Satan, essentially that's what they said, by the power of Satan, he's casting out Satan. Now, last week, Jesus refuted that, and he warned them. He said, you are dangerously close to committing the unforgivable sin. So he's warning them to call them to repentance. Well, what we see this week is the, the conversation actually continues. It continues, and the Pharisees and scribes come back, and they answer Jesus' condemnation of them, his warning to them. And what do they answer? They answer saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, on one level, you might think, well, that's, that's silly. They just saw a sign, didn't they? I mean, they just saw an exorcism by the Spirit of God from the hand of Jesus. What about all of Jesus' miracles? What about all the healings he's been doing? What about all those kingdom foretastes he's been giving? Why are they asking a sign? Well, that's a good question, and there's a two-part answer to that. First, it's the word sign. The word for sign here hasn't been used yet in Matthew, and it's a particular word that has a heritage in the Old Testament. You see, the idea of a sign in, in biblical terms, 
that idea actually, in large measure, comes from the Exodus. Because what happened in the Exodus? God sent Moses to speak to Israel and to Pharaoh, and he gave him what? Signs. Uh, he gave him the ability to turn his staff into a snake. He gave him the ability to put his hand into his cloak and it come out leprous. Uh, and then even the plagues themselves were called signs. So if you think about it for a second, it's like, okay, so we're t- when we talk about a sign, a biblical sign, we're talking about something on the scale of like the Exodus, like big epic stuff. And then if you think about Matthew, what Jesus has been doing Uh, nothing he's really done yet has really escalated to that kind of epic level, has it? Now, don't misunderstand me. It's been clear in Matthew that uh, all these healings, all of these exorcisms, as many and, and as marvelous as they are, that shows who Jesus is. It shows and accredits that he is the true messenger of God. He is a true messenger of God. But what the Pharisees are asking for is they want something epic and on demand. They want something big and flashy. And there's even, even in the Old Testament, prophets did this. Moses did it. Uh, Elijah did it. They did signs, big signs that accredited who they were as messengers of God. So what are the Pharisees and scribes doing? He just condemned them. And what are they doing? They're coming back with, okay, if you're going to condemn us and you're going to warn us to repentance, Give us a sign. Give us a big flashy sign to show that what you're saying is actually accurate. That's what they're saying in words. But what's their motive? We've already seen the character of the scribes and the Pharisees. This isn't a legitimate request, is it? This is a dodge. This is a way for them to retake control of the conversation and the situation. That's what the big deal is, right? When Jesus has uh, uh, gone against their authority... He's gone against their authority. They are coming back seeking to destroy him. Well, he just authoritatively declared that and condemned them and warned them. Well, how do they come back from that? They come back and say, all right, if you're going to condemn us, show us a sign and show us that you're really a prophet from God. But it's really a way for them to avoid what he is saying to them. There's been enough evidence so far. There's all the healings, all the exorcisms, all that Jesus has been doing. Just like John the Baptist asked, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus goes down the list. Here's all the things that are happening, John. Yes, I'm the Messiah. There's enough there for the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is a dodge. Verse 39, see how Jesus handles, handles it. But he answered, he answering said to them, An evil and adulterous generation is demanding a sign. Uh, The word is this idea for seeking, but it's like more powerful than that. It's like demanding. Like they're demanding a sign. Notice what he's doing here. Who is talking? The scribes and the Pharisees. But the scribes and the Pharisees are leaders of their generation. And now Jesus is indicting the whole generation. What does he mean by the generation? He's talking about the Israelites in Palestine that have seen all of this stuff. And he's characterizing that whole generation. He's painting with a broad brushstroke. Obviously, the disciples are exceptions to this. But he's saying, that's an evil and adulterous generation. This generation is an evil and adulterous generation. And it's demanding a sign. That they're demanding a sign shows that they're evil and adulterous. Now, Jesus has already talked about this generation before. Back in chapter 11, verse 16, he's talked about um, the generation as 
silly and like they're like silly and capricious children in the marketplace saying we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn we we sang a song and you didn't dance uh, the culture or the the generation wants john and jesus to sing to their tune rather than listening to the message of john and jesus and so now it's reached a point where jesus is saying an evil and adulterous generation is demanding a sign what do you mean by evil and adulterous, right? We, we already said them seeking for a sign is a dodge. Really, they're using it as an excuse from being faithful to God and to his messenger. That's why Jesus calls them an adulterous generation. They're using the sign and seeking and demanding a sign. Notice it's a sign on their terms, right? Uh, give us a sign on demand on our terms. Well, that's just an excuse to keep them from following God and God's messenger and God's Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus goes on, and a sign will not be given to it. You see that? Signs are gifts. They're gifts that come from the initiative of God. They're not something that you just demand and say, well, okay, if, you're, uh, if you, God, are real, or if this messenger is real, or if you, Jesus, are real, give me a sign. No, signs are gifts from a gracious God, and he gives them in his timing and is his way. And Jesus is saying, this generation is not going to be given a sign, except the sign of the Jonah the prophet. Like, what is the sign of Jonah the prophet? What is that? Well, thankfully, Jesus explains for us and gives us a clue in verse 40 what he's talking about. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So Jesus is drawing an analogy between what happened with Jonah and what was going to happen with him. So let's unpack what's going on with Jonah, because if we do that, we're going to be able to understand the analogy that Jesus is drawing with him. So let's talk about Jonah. We all know about Jonah. That's actually one of the most popular stories that's uh, survived in even our biblically illiterate culture, right? We understand who Jonah is. He's a prophet. He was sent to go to Nineveh. Evil, wicked people, people that are not Israelites, that are traditionally enemies of Israel. He's, uh, and Jonah, uh, this is unusual, a prophet is sent to a Gentile nation to give to them a message. And Jonah, Jonah doesn't want to go. So he goes to the opposite direction, and God throws a storm. He sends a, uh, Jonah gets thrown overboard. There's a big old fish of some sort, a sea monster, that swallows him up for three days and three nights. God's going to accomplish what he's going to do. Jonah doesn't want to go do what God's calling him to do. God's going to accomplish it anyway. The fish spits him out on shore. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. The Ninevites fall all over themselves repenting. Jonah is like a repentance magnet. It's kind of interesting when you read the story. It's very short. You should read it maybe this afternoon. But why? The question is why? Why in the world would this Ninevite nation, this, this, the evil people, why would they listen to Jonah? I mean, his message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. What? That doesn't seem like a message that would really have people falling all over themselves, repenting. Well, it's the three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. 
Because I don't know about you, uh, I don't know what it would be like to spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, but I'm sure it would do something to your appearance and your health. Maybe your long-term smell, I don't know. He had a few months to get to Nineveh, so maybe some of that subsided. But I just, it seems uh, logical that in the, the text, the idea is the Ninevites see this guy and like, buddy, what happened to you? And then he says, well, you know, uh, uh, I spent three days and three nights in the belly of a giant fish that spit me up on land. And a Ninevite would have been, what? You came from the belly of the big fish? Because you see, Nineveh, if you were to kind of translate it in today's language, is fish town. And they worshipped fish gods. So you can kind of under, start to understand a little bit why Jonah being in the belly of a fish three days and three nights would kind of startle them. And then Jonah starts to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And this is coming from a guy who just came from the great fish to tell us. It woke them up and they do genuinely repent and turn to Yahweh, not the fish God. So that's good. They do genuinely repent. Jesus is talking about, he'll talk about that here in a second. But that's how Jonah was assigned. But there's even more to it than that, right? So Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. He preaches to these Gentiles in Nineveh, and they repent. But Jonah isn't written to the Ninevites, is it? The book of Jonah wasn't delivered to the Ninevites. The book of Jonah was delivered to Israel. And Israel, at the time of Jonah, was evil and adulterous. It was wicked. It was not following God. And so Jonah becomes a sign not only to the Ninevites, but with the repentance of the Ninevites, it's an indictment against Israel. Israel, this is what you should be doing. Israel, you should be compassionate. That's what God says to Jonah. Why aren't you compassionate? In the book, Jonah kind of represents Israel. Jonah, why aren't you compassionate? See, God's plan was always for Israel to obey him. God would bless them, and then they would care, the, the nations of the world would be attracted to Israel so that they could know the true God. Israel's not being obedient, so it's not um, the nations of the world aren't coming to Israel. And so God is indicting Israel and saying, look, you don't have any compassion on the nations because if you did, you would repent like the Ninevites, and you would do what you're supposed to do, and that would actually attract the nations of the world so that they could know me, but you're not. So Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish becomes a sign for Israel too. It's a sign to show them, Israel, you're being wicked and rebellious, just like Jonah. And unless you repent, you're going to end up in a near-death situation called the exile. That's chapter two. You read Jonah's prayer, and it's, it's spoken of like the exile. And that's the warning. So that's the sign of Jonah. Now... We kind of understand that part of it a bit more. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's drawing a comparison. He's saying, all right, just as Jonah was in the belly of the, uh, the sea monster three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will, future, it hasn't happened yet, will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, to Matthew's audience, who's Jewish Christian, and they're post-resurrection, they understand what he's talking about. This is Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't it? You see, Jesus, like Jonah, represents Israel. Thankfully, he's a whole lot better than Jonah. But him being three days and three nights in 
the earth, him being buried, shows that the generation is going to kill him. And then what's going to happen? The tomb is going to spit him out after three days. And then that is going to be a sign of judgment to Israel. If you look at the early chapters of Acts, the resurrection is highlighted and it becomes the thing that Israel recognizes and says, oh no, we killed the Messiah. And now he's resurrected and ascended and he's going to judge us. And so you see in the early chapters of Acts, even from the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the priests, repentance, and yet not the whole nation. And so what do you see in the rest of Acts? A bunch of Gentiles repenting based on the sign of the resurrection, which is what? Just like Jonah, a bunch of Gentiles repenting is an indictment against Israel. So the resurrection becomes like the sign of Jonah, but after the Messiah is killed. So Jesus is giving them a cryptic warning that they'll understand after the fact as a sign of judgment to Israel for rejecting him. And then Jesus goes on to say, he's just kind of explained why I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. And then he goes on to condemn his generation. He was just talking about Nineveh, so he takes that opportunity to bring it back and kind of use Nineveh as an example. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment. So we're talking judgment day, the final judgment day. Men of Nineveh are going to rise up in the judgment with this generation. It gives us a picture of the judgment day. Judgment day is going to be all humans from all history, all generations there before God's judgment seat. That's the day of judgment. But notice how Jesus uses this. He says the men of Nineveh are going to rise up. They're going to be resurrected in the judgment with this generation. This generation of Israel that's heard me and John and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the generation of Nineveh that Jonah spoke to is going to condemn this generation. How so? Well, because they repented with reference to the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The issue has always been repentance. That's been the message of Jesus' ministry, of John's ministry, of the disciples' ministry. The issue is always repentance. And let's remember repentance. Repentance is first and foremost an allegiance change. You're changing allegiance from following your sin, from following your own heart, from following yourself, and you're bowing the knee in trust to Jesus as King, as Lord, as Master, and you're following him. Repentance starts as an allegiance change, but it ends in faith, and then ends in a faith that results in obedience, that a changed life, a changed mind, and changed behavior. That's what repentance is. Jesus implicitly acknowledges the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Yeah, Jonah's a prophet, and God used him, and the, the whole generation repented. But Jesus' point of comparison is, behold, something that greater than Jonah is here. It's right in front of you. Something greater than a prophet speaking to a people, Jews, not Gentiles, who have more knowledge, more revelation. 
the men of Nineveh had less and they repented. You guys have more and you're not repenting. You're going to be condemned. This is decisive language because Jesus, you'll notice he's addressed his generation earlier in chapter 11. He said uh, he started to condemn the cities where most of his mighty miracles had been done because those miracles attested to who he was. But he only spoke to a few cities. But now it's decisive condemnation, not only to a few cities, but to the whole generation of Israel. This is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is saying the door has closed. It's over. This generation is going to be condemned. Because they've heard the message, they've seen enough signs. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. I've given you all these kingdom foretastes, these kingdom signs, and you're not repenting. The door closed. There was just a tiny sliver left last week. With their request for a sign, it's over. And he gives another example, verse 42. The queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba that comes to visit Solomon. The queen of the south will be risen up in the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. It's not only going to be condemned by the people of Nineveh, it's going to be condemned by the queen of Sheba. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If you look back at those, that, that account, it, the Queen of Sheba hears reports. She like hears rumors about Solomon's wealth, his wisdom. And she packs up the caravan and packs up a bunch of gifts and comes to hear about Solomon and to hear about Yahweh, which is what Israel is supposed to do. God's going to bless Israel, and then it attracts the nations of the world so that they can hear about the one true God. So uh, the Queen of Sheba, she just hears, she hears a rumor about Solomon's wealth and wisdom, and she comes, which was the right thing for her to do. She made a long journey. What is Jesus saying? Something greater than Solomon's here. How is it greater? Well, Solomon's a Davidic king, the king that, uh, the, the, the kingly line that God had promised that uh, you'll not lack a man to sit on the throne. Solomon's the temple builder. Solomon is the wealthiest and the greatest in terms of just wealth and influence of the Davidic kings. So something greater than a Davidic, that Davidic king is here, but also his wisdom. He had far surpassing wisdom. And Jesus is saying more than a, the ultimate Davidic king, more than the, the, the famous Davidic king of Solomon more than his wisdom, something greater than all of that is here, namely me and my ministry. And so the queen of the south is going to rise up with this generation and condemn it because she did more with less information. And you've got all that you need right here, generation of Israel, and you're not repenting. The door has closed. The condemnation of that generation of Israel was sealed. That's what Jesus is saying, decisively, comprehensively. Obviously, there's the disciples as the exceptions, but by and large, that generation is doomed. It's over. See, there's been a chance. You've noticed that language throughout Matthew up to this point. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent. You don't hear that language of the kingdom of heaven having drawn near anymore because their chance was missed, their opportunity 
was missed. It's over. God only gives revelation and the opportunity for salvation for so long. He does not give it indefinitely. That's why Paul will say in his letters, today is the day of salvation. If you're going to do it, if you're going to repent, repent today, if you haven't. And then what's interesting, so Jesus has said, all right, I'm not going to give you a sign. You can wait for my resurrection. You know, he doesn't use the, he's, he's giving them a cryptic sign, but they'll become clear in his resurrection, right? That's the only sign I'm going to give you. And then, and then it's going to be a sign of judgment. Oh no, we killed the Messiah. But then, with, and, and then he just talked about the far future judgment, the judgment at the end of time for that generation. But what's interesting is in verses 43 through 45, he then is continuing to talk about the evil generation and describes what's going to happen near-term future, near-term future. Watch this. He uses a story, a true-to-life, a true-to-reality story to describe this. Now, whenever an unclean spirit goes out from a person, now, why is Jesus talking about this? Because what started this whole conversation? He cast out a demon from the mute and blind man. So he links into that and he says, now, whenever an unclean spirit goes out from a person, it passes through waterless places. What is waterless places? Well, it literally means places without water, like a desert, like an arid place. And you can kind of see in the New Testament that demons like to hang out in the desert. Don't know why, but that's why what Jesus is saying here. So this demon went out from a person, and he's wandering around the desert, spirit being wandering around the desert, seeking rest. So he's trying to, whether he's trying to find some other animal or some other being of some sort to inhabit or whatever rest means, he's trying to find relief of some sort, having been cast out. And he's not finding it. He's not finding rest. So what does the demon do? Verse 44. Then it is saying, into my house from which I went out, I will return. Now this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, What is the demon doing? He's thinking about, well, I left that person. And notice how he talks about it. That's my house. He's talking about the person as a dwelling place, as a house. That's my house. And I'm going to go back there creepy. And going, now, so the demon goes back, he finds the person he was cast out of, and going, he finds it. Now, he just drew an analogy between a person and a house, so he describes the person and the person's life in terms of a house being cleaned up. So he says, he finds it being empty, having been swept, and having been tidied, right? We might say the person cleaned up their life, we can see in the New Testament that demon possession, it drives you out into like the tombs and you're like gashing yourself. So you can imagine if the demon or demons left you, well, now I can clean up my life. Now I can live my life the way I ought to. And that's part of the joy and the goodness of being released from such horrible oppression and possession. And so the demon's saying, this guy's cleaned up his life. But the demon doesn't just go in. It's like, all right, great, perfect. I can go back in here. Notice what the demon does, verse 45. Then it goes, and it takes along with itself seven other uh, spirits more evil than itself. So it goes find some more demons. And seven of them, the complete number, like the complete whole of badness, worse, terrible demons. And what happens? And going in, it dwells there. 
They dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Which is kind of funny. Like, you're drawn into this story, right? And it's like, obviously, this is terrible. It's creepy, too, right? Um, that this, this um, person had a demon cast out. They're doing well. They're getting their life put back together. And then all of a sudden, the demon comes back with a vengeance with all of its friends and evil friends. And you can just imagine what the life of such a person would look like. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. And you just think about, you think about the life and the destruction that would happen to that person. But notice Jesus' punchline. In this manner, it will be also with this evil generation. Meaning what? What has Jesus been doing? He's been coming and cleaning house. He's been giving kingdom foretaste. He's been exercising demons. He's been creating a health zone in Israel. He's been creating a demon-free zone in Israel. He's giving foretaste of what the final kingdom will be like. No demons, no sickness. And did the Israelites benefit from that? Individually and corporately, yes. But the problem is they never repented. They experienced the benefits of the kingdom, but they never, they never repented. What keeps at bay in the new covenant, evil spirits, demons, the Satan, the spirit of God. And if you don't repent and follow Jesus, you're not going to get the spirit of God. Not individually, not corporately. So what Jesus is saying, it's going to be the same way with this generation. It's clean now while I'm still here. But when I leave, because they haven't repented, it's going to be worse. Israel's going to be worse off than when it started. Which historically is true. They rebelled against Rome in the mid-60s AD. Rome came in, crushed the place, crushed the temple. And Israel was worse off than before Jesus came because they didn't repent. It's over. It's over for that generation. So how is Matthew using this, right? He's writing to his Jewish Christian audience, and really he's giving him, them Jesus' words about, let's take a look at this generation and Jew, Matthew's Jewish Christian audience needs to know, all right, we see it. We see that, by and large, our generation of Israel didn't repent. It's following the false teachers, the false shepherds of the scribes and the Pharisees. We can see we have justification for separating from them. Because it's a wicked and evil and adulterous generation. Our generation is similar, isn't it? It's increasingly wicked and adulterous, isn't it? It's increasingly... Now, let's just think of our history. Um, we, we, in the U.S., it was founded on, by and large, Christian principles. We've had Christian witness for a couple hundred years, multiple decades, multiple centuries. And yet, what we see in our culture is that hasn't taken root, at least not in this generation, 
And in fact, it's heading the exact opposite direction. It's increasingly rejecting Jesus and the sign of the resurrection. You see, the sign of Jonah, the sign of the resurrection, is for all generations of Gentiles, right? That's why people believe. That's why we're Christians, because of the resurrection. And yet our culture is increasingly rejecting that sign. Our generation takes any excuse to not believe and to not follow Jesus. And here's the reality. Ours is an evil and adulterous generation, and just like Matthew's audience, we will increasingly need to separate ourselves from it. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't love our generation. It's not like we're going out into the woods somewhere, some hippie commune or whatever. That's not what we're doing. We love our nation. We love our generation. But we are Christians first, and we are everything else second, which is going to mean that we will not be able to follow our generation because we follow Christ. We follow him as king. We don't follow our generation and its voices. And I truly believe this is going to happen. It's already happening. We will become more and more isolated in the coming years, and we must steel ourselves for that coming reality as our nation grows in increasing wickedness. We need to be ready, just like Matthew's generation. We still proclaim the gospel. We still proclaim, proclaim a message of repentance, and yet, in large measure, the door is closed. What's there for us even more is this. God has given us, he's given you clear enough signs. We have this, and we have evidence in Spirit-transformed life in individuals, people turning from sin and following Jesus. And we have enough signs about his son to, for you to follow. Are you going to repent and keep repenting? Are you going to follow and are you going to keep following? See, the Christian life is not just, I made a decision back then, I'm good to go. No. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is discipleship, which means I'm going to repent, turn my allegiance from sin and self, and I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to keep repenting. I'm going to trust Jesus. I did that in the past, and I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to, I started to follow Jesus in the past, and I'm going to keep following. That is the Christian life. So are you going to repent and keep repenting? Are you going to trust and keep trusting? Are you going to follow and keep following? Or are you going to try to continue to have things on your own terms? Many have followed Christ through the centuries with less revelation than you do. Are you going to follow Christ or are you going to be condemned on the day of judgment by those who have followed Christ with less revelation, just like Jesus says? So we've seen Jesus' stance towards his evil and adulterous generation. Now let's see Jesus' stance towards his family. And I don't know if you've read this section of Matthew before, but um, sometimes you kind of segment things in your mind, like, okay, there's this section, and then there's this section, and they're not really related. Well, what's going on with Jesus' family is very related to what just happened. Jesus is talking about his generation, his kin at large, and now he's going to talk about his closest kin with his family. 
So let's see Jesus' stance towards his family in verses 46 through 50. And Matthew connects these together because he says this, while he was still speaking to the crowds. So Jesus has been primarily speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet the crowds are still there. They were there at the exorcism. So the crowds are the secondary audience. So he's talking to the crowds. He's still talking to the crowds and the same crowds at the same exact time that the earlier episodes took place. And what happens? Behold, his mother and brothers, so Mary and Jesus' brothers, had stood outside seeking to speak with him. So evidently, um, Matthew didn't clue us in on this before, but now he does. They're in a house, and evidently the house is packed, right? It's packed with people here in Jesus. And the language here is they had stood outside, meaning they come and they've been outside for a while. Maybe they're kind of waiting for him to be done, and the crowd's going to disperse, but they've been outside, and they are seeking to speak with him. And then we get a report. Evidently, eventually, they tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, can you get Jesus' attention? So someone says to them, someone says to Jesus, doesn't describe who it is, just someone there. And we don't know, did this person whisper in his ear? Did he say it publicly? Um, you know, did it, was it like, hey, Jesus, your, your, your mom and dad are outside? Or was it like, hey, Jesus, your mom and dad are outside? Or not your dad, but uh, your, mom, your mom and brothers are outside. Your family's outside. We don't know which of those two it was. But someone says to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside. They've stood there seeking to speak with you. Now let's pause and think about this for a second. You know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Like it's, you should be able to talk with your family, your close family. Um, not a big deal. I mean, that's a good thing. But there's some hints here that say this isn't a good sort of, this isn't a social call. This isn't a social call. Even in Matthew, we can see that. Uh, why? Well, one, one, Jesus' family is not following him as disciples because if they were, they would be in the house already with him which is especially grievous since Jesus has made clear that given the nearness of the kingdom and its pressing realities, it requires that nothing less, that nothing is more important than following him. Matthew 9, 18 through 22. So that they're not there is not good. They're not following Jesus at this point. Even his closest family, even Mary. Later she does, and later James does, and later Jude does. We know that but not right now. Two, his family evidently can't get to him because of the crowds in a house and crowds to whom Jesus is actively speaking and teaching about the realities of the utmost importance. And yet his family is willing to interrupt this because of their desire to speak with him. They think that's urgent enough to interrupt the king speaking about his kingdom and speaking about the condemnation of that generation. So that's a second clue. This isn't a social call, and this is not good. Third, given the escalating conflict between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees and his denunciation of that generation, it is reasonable to assume that his family wants to speak to him about this, perhaps to try to put a stop to it. And that's actually confirmed by Mark, where he actually does give a reason. He says they think he's out of his mind. This is not a social call. This is kind of like, 
maybe you were in trouble and you ran out of the house for a little while and you came back in and your father would like to speak to you. That's the overtone of this passage, even in Matthew. So notice that sets the stage for Jesus' response, verse 48. Now he answering said to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, even to our ears, that sounds rude. It's sharp. And it would have been very sharp to that generation. It would have seemed to be disrespectful. Because essentially what Jesus is doing with that question is calling into question, who, who is my closest family? Who's my family? And notice what Jesus does, verse 49. And stretching out his hand over his disciples, so his disciples are right there, and he stretches out his hand over them. Why? Because that's, a, that's the gesture you use when you're saying, I'm identifying with these people right here. And he says this, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Here's my family. Not the people outside. Here's my family, my disciples. Why? Verse 50, For whoever does the will of my father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You want to know who my closest family is, Jesus is saying, it's these people. It's these disciples right in front of him. It's the people who do the will of my father. Now, what does that mean, to do the will of my father? Well, it's an all-encompassing term because what is, God, what is the father's will in Jesus' ministry? The father's will is repent. Turn your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Jesus as king and follow him as king no matter what. And that's going to change your whole life. Remember Matthew 5 through 7. It's not only that you've committed to this, but it's going to change your behavior. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, speaks of kingdom righteousness. And so those who do the will of the Father in heaven, Jesus' Father, they show his, his true family. Jesus' closest family is not his biological family. It is the disciples. That's what he is saying which actually would have been very great news to Matthew's audience because, all right, we're having to separate from this evil and adulterous generation, but where are we going to find our identity? Because people find their identity in community. And how does that start? For Matthew's generation, it means that they're going to identify with Jesus, the king, they're identifying with the father, who's the father of the son, and then of his adopted children, the disciples, and that's where Jesus, Matthew's audience of Jewish Christians are going to find their identity. Jesus is essentially saying, find your identity in me. I, he, um, the disciples are your closest family. So you find your identity in Jesus, and by implication, you're finding your identity in the community of disciples who are also following Jesus and doing the Father's will. You follow the master of the house, you're going to follow the family. Where are you rooting your identity? It should be your greatest joy as, to, as a Christian to hear Jesus say that his closest family are his disciples. Isn't that good news? To hear Jesus saying that you're my closest family. 
You're the ones I'm responsible for. You're the ones I love. You're the ones I'm closest to. Warts and all. A true disciple, a Christian, is one who does the will of Jesus' Father, meaning the whole complex of repentance, faith, and following, obedience. It's not the decision 20 years ago. It's the life from that decision to now of following Jesus, loving him above all, obeying him, devoting your whole life to him. Are you doing the Father's will? Are you rooting your identity in Jesus? Is that your foundational identity? When you, is that how you think of yourself? When you think about yourself, we do this every so often, maybe it's subconsciously, but when you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus? Is that how, not only you, but is that how others see you? They understand, yeah, that person, they're a follower of Jesus. That's who they are. That's who they are. Whether they agree with you or not, that's who they are. Is that your greatest joy, to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Or is there another identity? I'm an American. I'm a family person. I'm a good person. I'm a productive person. I'm an athlete. I'm a blank. Fill in the blank. What's the blank that you're filling in right now in your mind of how you think about yourself? Are you a Christian first and everything else second. And if you're rooting your identity in Jesus, do you see how that means? As it meant for Matthew's audience, that you root your identity in the family of the disciples, the family of the king, i.e. the church. We form our identity in community, and Jesus would have you form your identity with him, have you identify with him publicly and then to identify with his family publicly? The church, identifying with the church in a visible public way. This is what we mean by membership. We do not believe in membership here as a sign on the dotted line. Yay, you got added to the roster of members. We believe in membership like this. We're affirming that you're a family member, that you follow Jesus and we're welcoming you in as the family. We see that you're following Jesus, and we welcome you in as family members. That's what membership at Faith Bible Church means. How does that happen? Well, initially, at this church or another church, it happens through the waters of baptism, and then it happens in an ongoing way. Through the Lord's Supper, we come to the family meal, which we will do next week, and we're saying, here's the family. Here's the family that we know and we love here in this local place. The church, as the household of God, is a gift to you to affirm you in your faith and to help you follow Jesus. Just like any family, we're going to have our differences and our disagreements, but we get through those and love one another and stay unified because we love Jesus first and foremost. He's made us family. And especially as we separate from an increasingly wicked generation, we're going to have to draw closer to each other just like Matthew's audience of Jewish Christians and like the early church did at large. What happened in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation, whether you're talking a Jewish uh, setting or whether you're talking about a Greco-Roman setting, didn't matter. The church drew near to itself because 
That was how they found their identity in community to stand against and be separate from a wicked and evil generation. And that is what we will need to do increasingly so. Root your identity in the king's family of disciples, not in an evil and adulterous generation. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your family. You love these people, and I love these people. You love this family. You love these brothers and sisters of yours, as do I. Lord, help us as a people to draw near to each other because we're drawing near to you and because we love you. Lord, our generation is wicked and adulterous. It's horrible. And yet, help us to continue to speak the message of repentance, to not forego that, to not cease to love our nation or our generation, and yet to not find our identity there, to not follow them, but to find our identity in you and in your family, the church. Help us to practice these things. Help us to behave as your family, as you would have us loving each other, being unified with each other, caring for one another, serving one another. If there are people here that have not identified with you and have not repented, draw them to repentance. And if there are people here who have not identified with your visible public family of the church, push them to do so, Lord, we would ask. We thank you for making us family. We thank you for your death in our place and your life, your righteousness in our place. We thank you for your resurrection that has made us a resurrection people, and we praise you. Help us to live these truths out, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. Adapted from 1 Timothy 3.15 is our benediction this morning. May you know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Church. Church family, you are sent.